This is Bobby Rock, and you're listening to The Pod Kissed. <laughs> All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasted. you know we want to tell everybody to go out to the indianapolis kiss fan expo may 12th and may 13th you need to get out there ace eric lita ford bob kulik bruce kulik too many names to mention and we've been doing it all along so get out there one of the people you're going to meet is somebody on the line with me right now ladies and gentlemen bobby rock hello bobby hey ken what's happening First of all, it's it's nice to talk to you. I met you back when you opened up for Alice Cooper with Vinnie Vincent's Invasion back in the day. Oh shit! What yeah. what city? Fairfax, I believe, Virginia. Virginia, yep, yep. The Patriot Center or Patriot something or other. Yes, and I I was working security. Okay. And I was watching the show from the side of the stage. Unbeknownst to me, a guy was standing just behind me, and he. He kind of moved around to get a better look, and it was Alice Cooper himself. Oh, wow. And he was standing there, and he's watching, he was watching Vinny hump the amplifiers. <laughs> and he said something like, my God, he's raping the stage. <laughs> you know, something like, Hendrix had sex, Vinny's raping the stage. It was something like that. So, <laughs> kind of a bizarre thing. That's pretty fucking funny, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. Welcome to the podcast, Bobby. So glad to have you here. You are now going to be part of the Kiss family. It's pretty much official at this point, right? <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah, I got to say, I've always really felt welcome just through the years with my affiliation with Vinny uh, and even for years afterwards. The Kiss fans have always made me feel right at home with the uh, with the family tree lineage there, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for those who do not know, you were part of Vinnie Vincent's Invasion. And boy, <laughs> that that in itself is a mouthful, right? So you've been through it all. You you were an MTV darling there for a while. Oh, yeah. That was that was kind of a bizarre thing to see yourself on MTV. Do you remember when, when the video for Boys Wanna Rock premiered on MTV? Do you remember that? Oh, hell yes. It was quite a, quite a time. We had gotten word, like back then, they made a big thing about the, it was always like, like the first time they played it, the, the official debut type thing. Mm-hmm. And so we were, I remember just being parked in front of the TV set about 30 minutes prior and, and waiting for that magical moment, you know? And uh, it, it was exciting to see. We had seen a final, final cut of the vid prior, but it was exciting to see it actually air and, and the VJ introduce it and all that, you know, it was cool. They played that thing at the beginning of every half an hour the first day it came out. Yes, it was it was on active rotation for a day at least. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, they would start out every half an hour with that clip. It was insane. The the only other clip I remember them doing that was like David Lee Roth's uh, Yankee Rose. Right, right. You know, that it was yeah. kind of metal. That's cool. Yeah, so it was over the top. And I remember my brother and I just, we, we saw the video and we're like, we got to get to the record store like now. You know what I mean? And and we got there, and people were buying the album. It was just literally flying off the shelf. They ran out of stock. And that just shows you the power of MTV and that video at the time. So you actually lived through all of that. Right, right. Oh, yeah. So you have experienced part of history with Vinnie Vincent. And you, you've done so much with other artists as well. I mean, your resume is pretty cool. And not only are you someone that worked with Vinnie Vincent, you've worked with Rare Earth, Bob and Bruce Kulick, Monster Circus right. featuring Dee Snyder, Carnival Souls, Nitros, the Stu Ham Band, Graham Bonnet. It, it list goes on and on. And currently right now you're working with rock icon Lita Ford. So you've had a steady, constant career. And not only that, you are an author. And you're here today right. to talk about your book that you have out called The Boy is Gonna Rock. Yes. It says here, a native Californian, Bobby grew up in Houston, Texas, before pursuing a career in music. The Boy is Gonna Rock, a drummer's journey from Houston to Hollywood in search of hair metal heaven. And you actually <laughs> uh, got there. <laughs> so Indeed. Let's talk a little bit, since this is the podcast, let's talk a little bit about how you became a drummer and your thoughts on KISS back in the day. Right. Well, for me, it all really began when my sister's boyfriend brought over a copy of Alice Cooper's Killer record. And at that point, you know, I was probably 10 years old and, and wasn't especially dialed into the rock scene or anything. But there was something about the visuals of that record. And if you remember the the, the shot of Alice where he's hanging from a noose mm -hmm. inside there in the, in the gatefold, it, it, there's something about that shot. And, of course, the shot of the band on the, back, on the back cover with all the long hair and the earrings and Alice's makeup and all of that. Mm -hmm. I just I felt drawn to that world. I didn't I you know, didn't play any instrument at that point. I didn't know how I could be part of that world. But I just felt like you know, destined to be part of this madness. It was that uh, provocative to me, you know. And then a couple months later, as it turned out, I was watching a couple local drummer guys. They used to go jam in their bedrooms, you know, to play along with records and all that. So one time, they were a few years older. One day they invited me into the room to watch and they pulled out Black Sabbath Volume 4, put the needle down on Song 1, Side 1, Wheels of Confusion. And, and then this guy, Cole Newberry, the the, the drummer there uh, starts playing along with the tune. And just for me, that was the moment. That was the moment I said, you know what? I want to do that. I want to be a drummer. That was your Ed Sullivan moment. It literally was. I mean, I always say that any musician you ask, when did you decide that you wanted to start playing your particular instrument? They could almost always take you back to a moment. And what you just said there is exactly right. Like the guys who were sort of like the generation before me, Ed Sullivan, Ringo, I mean, that, that was, they all say that, you know, and, mm -hmm. but for me, it was Black Sabbath volume four <laughs> and uh, that was it, man. From there it was school band and drum lessons and garage bands and just, just, uh, it, it, nothing, the, the trajectory was forever altered in that moment. Mm -hmm. Now you and I are sharing a similar path here because I too was, uh, captured by Alice Cooper 
And then a little bit later, this thing appeared, and it was called Kiss, and it was like four Alice Coopers instead of one. <laughs> right, right. So how did Kiss come on your radar? Here's what it was, man. A uh, stop and go. I don't know if you guys, I think they were maybe in regional. It's kind of like a 7-Eleven. It was like mm -hmm. a, one of these mini mart type places around the corner. I walk in there one day and they used to sell albums there. And I walked in and there was the first Kiss album. And uh, just this was purely a visual thing, man. Like, holy shit, what is this? Mm -hmm. And that was it. Bought the record, <laughs> became a fan immediately. And, uh, you know, always dug Kiss, of course, but it wasn't until the Alive record that I really uh, came on board full-fledged, you know? Right. So, that, so the, yeah, Alive was probably my full indoctrination to Kiss land, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to move ahead a little bit. What was your first professional gig? Uh, first professional gig was probably like a, like a dance or something like that. In fact, mm -hmm. it was it was a it was a dance that we played. I, I was in a in a, a rehab program. I got involved with with weed and alcohol at a really really young age. So I ended up having uh, getting in a band with some of my fellow rehabbers there. And you know the, the program I was involved with had a, had a dance one time, and they hired us to play at it. And that was that was my first professional gig, probably fourteen or fifteen. Oh wow. Now, you mentioned that, that you took lessons. Uh, were, were you in high school band and stuff like that? Man, I started school band in sixth grade, started drum lessons around that time, sixth, seventh grade also. Uh, you know, grew up in Houston, so had a, a, my, my band director was really extraordinary. Uh, Mary Thompson, uh, Scarborough High School, she was a great teacher, very dedicated, got me into the right kind of work ethic for practicing and reading music and all that. Referred me to my first drum teacher, a guy named Randy May, who kind of became uh, somewhat of an industry legend. He's still around to this day. I just saw him a couple months ago. It was really incredible. Uh, but yeah, I had, had you know, good teachers uh, and, and a pretty diverse, you know, like I said, the, between the school band, I, I was in school band, jazz band all throughout high school, studied privately throughout high school, all that stuff. You know, people don't realize what band actually teaches you. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it actually helps you become a professional. And in this field that you're working in, a lot of the stuff that you used in band probably helped you survive as a working musician. Man, that, that is so true. In my case, through the years, there have been instances where, you know, someone needs me to, to do a show with them in three days or somebody needs me to learn a bunch of songs and come in and record. This has happened a lot. It still happens to this very day. And mm -hmm. when you have a very limited amount of time to learn stuff, it, you, know, you have to kind of put together your own what I call cheat sheets, your own little uh, drumming charts. And of course, by being able to read music and all that, it helps you write out the key, you know, beats and and kicks and accents and drum fills and things like that. I mean, I don't know. I know there's some guys who can do it without it. I guess just from memory or listening or whatever. But man, I really being able to have that visual reference has saved my ass through the years on a number of occasions. Mm. And not to mention all of like the, the the rudiment, you know, the the drumming rudiments and the stuff that a lot of drummers might find boring to practice and kind of irrelevant to playing drum set. Everything you play on the drum set always relates back to a lot of those basics. So mm. I still that I still integrate a lot of this stuff in my practicing to this day. You know. And really, when you think about it, without uh, what you learned in school, and you know, the, to me, this just points out the importance 
of music education. It, it you know back when Eddie Van Halen exploded, a lot of a lot of people would buy guitars and they just learned how to go weedly weedly weedly, right? But they didn't learn the right, basics. Right. They they didn't learn what will keep you going in this business. So you know, and you actually wound up at Berkeley. True. Yes. Yeah. Right out of high school. Again, that Miss Thompson, who I mentioned had been a big influence. She was the one that, that suggested it's the best conservatory there is. And uh, you'll, you'll go further to go there than to go to some community college or some other place, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I took her advice and got in there for sure. Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When I would see you on the cover of an album and you'd be wearing this leotard outfit or something like that with your hair looking like a lion i had no idea the amount of education and the amount of philosophy that you put into things and i find it very impressive after doing a lot of research on you for this interview i was really amazed to find out that not only are you have you written the boy is gonna rock but you have several other books as well we're going to get into that later but it's it's just really interesting to read your thoughts on music education and, and how you got to here now. But let's go back to how you ran into Vinnie Vincent. Could you like set the stage? And and how many chapters are there in the book about the Vinnie Vincent section? Well, the, the there are 15 total chapters. And mm -hmm. really, I mean, the, the chapter one kind of sets up uh, the, the, the overall about how I got interested in music and the volume Black Sabbath story, volume four, you know, that, that whole thing. But from... From chapter two on to the pretty much the end of it is centered around, except for the last chapter, which is kind of a you know catching people up to date and everything. Mm -hmm. it, it it focuses on the entire Vinnie Vincent invasion saga, you know, pretty much. So it's very detailed uh, from the first day I met everybody at the audition to the last you know bitter gig we played together in August of '88. It's everything is documented in ways and in de amounts of detail that I've never published before. So for anybody who's interested from that perspective, it's all covered in there for sure. Beyond that, the broader narrative is just the story of a kid from Houston who goes to LA and everything that happened after, you know, <laughs> right. hence the title, which of course is a play on the boys are going to rock, but you know. Mm -hmm. And can, can you like kind of set the stage and go back to that, to that time when you contacted the band and how you got your name. Right. Okay. So it's 1985 and I'm just perpetually on the road with like a, a cover band playing all around the South and Midwest, like a 12, 13 state region, basically. And this was probably the most robust time in America for live entertainment. I mean, I don't know if you remember back then, man, I, in any big city, there were multiple clubs, Mm -hmm. With live music five to seven nights a week, it was phenomenal. So I was out there in the thick of all that, enjoying myself and realizing, you know what, man, this is kind of a hamster wheel out here. You know, I need to get to L.A. I need to try to step up to the next level. So another band on the circuit that I was on it was a band called Sweet Savage, and they were one of the top drawing bands on the circuit. I was friends with the guys. The singer's name was Joey C. Jones, and I was on a break from touring, and I, and I called Joey and said, man, I know you guys have been doing really well. And you just were recently out in Los Angeles doing an EP. I go, man, I want to go out to LA. Who should I contact? What should I do? Do you have any advice for me? He said, well, man, the guy who produced our record was this guy named Dana Strong. And he's working with, you know, Vinnie Vincent from who just left Kiss recently. They're putting a band together. And I don't think they have a drummer yet. You should call Dana. 
So he gave me Dana Strong's phone number. And from right there, one afternoon in, at my parents' house in Houston, Texas, I called and, and left a message on Dana's answering machine. And I mean, answering machine is in like with the cassette, like the, the old yeah. school, you know. And that was it. I just gave this sort of, you know, rambling message about how I'd come in and slay the gig and these guys needed to give me a chance and blah, blah, blah. And as it turned out, Dana, you know, was intrigued enough by the by the message to call me back. And after a you know 20 minute conversation, he said, OK, cool, we'll uh, we'll give you a shot. And that was pretty much it. It took a number of weeks between that conversation when the audition was finally set up. But, but sure enough, they called back with a with a date, and I uh, packed up my my Ford Econoline van and and drove from Houston out to Los Angeles and had a, a very very destined uh, occasion at at uh, the audition there. Uh, and that was that was pretty much how it how it uh, how it launched. Now, with regard to the name you had mentioned, you know, my, my real last name is Brock, just simply mm -hmm. B-R-O-C-K. So somehow in the initial message that I left for Dana, that got lost to translation, and they thought my last name was Rock. So after the audition, we went to the label. They, they brought me to Chrysalis Records to meet everybody, and they were introducing me as Bobby Rock. And, of course, I couldn't correct them. I didn't want to correct them in front of all the, the, the suits there or whatnot. So <laughs> I remember making a metal note. I need to tell these guys my last name is Brock, you know, but I, I didn't get around to telling them. I went back to Houston during the next uh, probably month or two before I came back to LA to start working on the record. And I saw that Vinny had been doing these interviews where he's talking about his, you know, badass drummer from Houston named Bobby Rock. So when I pulled them aside at the studio, hey, guys, by the way, I've been meaning to tell you, you know, my, my last name isn't really Rock. Vinny says, it is now. And I'm like, because uh, uh, I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, to me, it just sounded, I mean, I know back then, you know, uh, you know, Nikki Six, Blackie Wallace, Ricky Rocket. I mean, back then, that was kind of in vogue to have those cheesy over the top names. So it kind of fit in on that sense. But to me, it was just hokey. It just sounded like a stage name. And I said, man, it just, but you know, if you're really a, a you know, a credible musician and blah, 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 do you really want to have a name? I mean, you know, like, you know it's like, it's like somebody, you know, calling themselves, you know, Johnny Star or something. And then he said, well, that worked out for Ringo. And it was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, he kind of has a point there. <laughs> and so I just kind of rolled with it, you know, it's like, ah, you know, one letter off sign of the times, I'll go with it. And I've had my misgivings about it through the years, but you know, 30 plus years later, uh, it's too late. <laughs> plus it kind of worked. And, and when you think it about did. it, it did. Bobby Brock and Bobby Rocker, there's not much difference, you know. Plus, it, it may have stopped some sort of weirdo, you know, from tracing you down, right? Oh, right. True. <laughs> well, Vinny was renamed, and, uh, you know, Gene renamed Derek Carr and also renamed Michael James Jackson because he didn't want him to be confused with Michael Jackson, so... <laughs> Right. So Interesting. It, yeah. So, so it was a thing. From what I understand, Dana also gave you another reason that you should go with. Uh... Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is in the book as well. You know, it was just, uh, you know, at that time, most people called me Bob versus Bobby. I mean, some people call me Bobby. Predominantly, it was Bob. So the big thing was, OK, cool. I'll go with rock. But what should it be? Should it be Bob Rock or Bobby Rock? And this is before the Canadian producer, uh, Bob Rock was around, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, so Dana says, well, just, you know, uh, imagine, you know, you're out on the road and you're banging some girl in your hotel room. You know, how would she call out your name in those moments? Well, like, you know, would she say, Oh, Bob, or, Oh, Bobby. And I go, well, she, she'd probably say Bobby, you know, he goes, they go with Bobby Rock. 
And that was how I ultimately decided on Bobby Rock over Bob Rock, believe it or not. <laughs> so, boys and girls, it's see, it's so important what a stage name can do for you on and off the road. So, uh, and that is how Bob Brock became Bobby Rock. So, there you go. It all worked out. <laughs>
you go into detail in your book about working with Vinny, and you you take a very interesting stance or a way of thinking. You don't look at Vinny as as just one thing. You see him as many things, and you kind of share that in the book. And basically, you're not painting Vinny as a bad guy. You're dealing with him as a really full you know, human being, whereas a lot of people, they seem to get their kicks out of painting people into corners. You go back to to these times in the 80s, and you deal with working with Vinny as the person, and, and the things that kind of drove him for good and for bad. That's exactly right. That's a great, I'm glad you, you came away with that observation of it, because I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, Vinny Vincent is a very, very complex character, and, you know, there, there's there's a there's a method to the madness, so to speak. I mean, there's a reason why, uh, you know, he he, in my opinion, you know, that, that he's been inclined to do some of the things that he would do, especially like in our case in the studio with redoing the drums and and you know his being so meticulous uh, uh, and almost obsessive about how the drums are recorded and all of that. It's because he wanted to hear things go down a certain way. I, I never bought into the idea that he was, you know, uh, you know, just trying to be a prick. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to make this young kid from Houston do the record three on three different occasions. Uh, I mean, what would his motive be for that? You know, I mean, why would he want to spend all that money, you know, racking up studio time so he could redo the record over and over again? And, and what would he have to gain by, uh, you know, uh, being on some kind of a power trip? I, I, even back then, I didn't really see it that way. And of course, in the retrospective view, you understand how how complex he is and. Uh, I think it was, as I explained, it was, it was ultimately a matter of, I think he was trying to reconcile two different sort of drumming slash performance concepts back then. You know, on the one hand, this was at the advent of all the, the drum machine stuff going on, the drum programming stuff. Like it was, you know, that, or stuff that sounded like, you know, Pyromania was like, it was one of the first records to come out that really had that super polished, clean, you know, drum type approach and everything else in popular music, you know, Michael Jackson and all the other shit that was going on back then, all drum machines, all programming, you know, fucking Miami Vice or any kind of TV show or soundtrack, all all was kicking over to machines. So in our culture, we were starting to hear this, this sort of, you know, like huge sounding drums that, that had that very mechanical type of uh, accuracy to them. So he was drawn to that sound because it was part of what was happening. And he was someone who listened to a lot of different kinds of music. But at the same time, you know, Vinnie Vincent is a badass musician and he comes from that old school musician type uh, ethos. You know, I mean, he likes to jam. He likes to play. He likes guys that can play. And he, you know, I, I auditioned, for example, he really liked all of the crazy, like I wound, I started with just playing rock stuff, but we kind of ventured off into other, uh, areas. Um, the guys were basically just sitting there watching me play. He really liked a lot of the the more advanced uh, drumming stuff and the, and the four way where I get each limb doing something different and the super fast chopsy type fills. So he wanted that in there also. So I think what he was trying to reconcile or work out through our sessions is how can we get you know that mechanical groove, big drum sound that sounds like a machine, but then also get you know this like a, a live drummer who can play his ass off. Uh, in a big drum room sound <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. right and i think that was the the learning curve and that's what happened and and we uh it, in my opinion it was kind of it wound up for a lot of different reasons being sort of a half-assed version of the best of both worlds because it just had to be in the end but that's kind of like what it is if you uh 
if you listen carefully, you'll see that a lot of the, the, the groove stuff, the drum stuff through the verses and the choruses on that are pretty straightforward. But then there are like these like bombastic fills <laughs> that, that jump out at you, you know. So it's kind of like that, that was the concept. And that's what I think he struggled with, you know. Well, you know, you mentioned about being uh, in, in the cover band and how music was exploding at that time. This was in the time when uh, culturally you had everything from Van Halen to Madonna to uh, Huey Lewis and the News, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, Michael Jackson. Everything was exploding, Duran Duran, and it, and it just kept going on and on. It was, it was like something was in the water that was different, right? And being yes. in that... And and if you're in a cover band, you've got to be able to adapt to what is going on fast. So you wind up in the recording studio, and they're having you do all these insane things. I remember reading at the time that you would play with weights on your arms. Now, how true is that? Because a lot of times in the rock press, you would hear something about, you know... Uh, this guy does this and this guy does that. And it's all a bunch of hype. Did you actually do that where you put right. weights on your arms? That is true. Uh, I put them on my wrists and also my ankles. I, I use the heavier ones, like the five pounders on my ankles. And I had some lighter ones that I put around my wrist and I would, you know, as, as a way, as a means of conditioning. And I was also at that point, that's, I just, you know, probably a couple years prior started getting into lifting weights and all of that. So I really, that was kind of part of the regimen at that point. Yes. Now, what kind of weights are we talking about? How much? How many pounds? You know, the, the, the classic sort of five-pound ankle weights that mm -hmm. have the straps and all that, that's what mm -hmm. I would use for, for my feet because they were, they were heavier. But for, the, for my, I think there were like these like maybe two or three pounders or something like that for my wrists. And, and, that, you know, and even if you play a shorter period of time on them and then you take them off, you can really begin to feel the difference. But I would do... I would use them in the practice room mainly and, and force myself to like play as I normally would uh, with them on so that when I took them off, it was like, you know, a walk in the park. So let me ask you, did it work? Did the five pound weights work? Yeah. Yeah. All, all that, all that kind of conditioning. I'm a big fan of it. In fact, to this very day, I travel with, uh, you know, uh, weighted drumsticks basically. And also these, now, now they have these things that are like uh, weighted gloves I think they're about two two pounds a piece, but you just you just slip them on like gloves. And I'll do you know practice pad work. I'll do different kind of things in my hotel room. I'll practice some of my martial arts stuff with those gloves on. And it's just you know you're you're getting used to moving your hands and moving your arms with that added weight. Uh, I'll combine them with the weighted sticks uh, when I do warm ups. And then you then you go back to regular sticks and and, and no weights. And it's like uh, you know you're defying gravity all of a sudden. So I I'm a, I'm a fan of that style of conditioning for sure. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Now, let's go back to the studio. So you mentioned that Vinny had you record the drums for the first Invasion album three different times, which that is a very small sentence, but people don't realize the hell you went through in the dungeon, <laughs> which uh, you, you called the recording <laughs> right. studio that they had set up, the dungeon. Yes. Mm -hmm. Vinny was thrilled to have you do all these intense, amazing fills. First off, were you ever afraid that, how can I replicate this stuff live every night? Did you ever run into that? Not really, because, I mean, obviously, if, if I could play it in the studio, even after multiple takes or messing it up a few times or whatever, then it, it, everything I played was within my ability to play. Mm -hmm. But it's just kind of like, you know, back then, the, the, the technology was such that you could punch 
you know, like the, the uh, you're, you're recording on the two inch tape. So you hit the record button. And then whenever you want to, uh, you know, obviously stop recording, you hit stop or just hit the play button, whatever, and it, and it plays the recording. But the point is that you can you can go in and, and grab little excerpts. You can go in and do, you know, you can kind of piece together your takes that way. Dana Strum, by the way, was the master puncher. He just he had a he had so much practice doing it from all the different shit he was producing back then that he could punch together some crazy takes. So a lot of Vinny solos, he would, you know, punch some pieces together. But, you know, Vinny was actually playing all this stuff. So then it was just punched together the solo. It sounds great. Now I got to learn the solo, right? You know, right, as right, it was right. pieced together. And it was kind of the same in my case. Like, I got I to gotta learn that this facility goes here, this facility goes there, you know. But it was all part of an, you know, sort of an organic unfolding of, of me playing along with the track and them sort of producing me th- uh, through the process, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, you know, I, I'm one of those people that believes that the uh, game is to be sold, not told. So I'm going to try to condense this story, but make it so that people still want to buy the book. So <laughs> if you want the full details, right. we're, we're, we're just going to gloss over this. It is agonizing to read what happened to you in that studio. Because you, you're joining this band, you've got this record contract, you think, here we go, we've got it, the label digs what we're doing. And you do the drums, and then Vinny gets really finicky fast. He's got this vision in his mind that maybe the drums he wants to do are a little more, not necessarily hard rock thinking, maybe something else. Because back then, a lot of genres were happening and exploding and trying different things. And I think Vinny Vincent actually wanted to be, I mean, he definitely caused a sensation, right? I mean, everybody that went and bought that album right. was like, can you believe this? This is insanity. You know, I remember that right. was the big conversation at the time. We we couldn't even tell if the album was good or bad. We just knew that it was over the top and crazy. So he definitely, <laughs> you know, did that. So it, that kind of sets with a person personally, whether they like it or not. But you can't argue with the fact that it was an attention getter and it definitely worked. So you do the drums. You put you pour your heart and soul into it. You give him exactly what he asked for, and then he starts flaking on you. And he's doing things where he's comparing what you're doing with a drum machine. Right. So the important thing logistically to understand is that the, the record was recorded in a very unorthodox way mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of the, the chronology of, of how each of us recorded. Now, typically, the way it was back then, the way it is now, the way it kind of has always been is at the very least, you know, you'll record drums first or maybe drums and bass, or you might have drums and bass with like a scratch guitar track, all mm-hmm. the guys jamming in the studio together, or it could just be just the drummer playing with a click track and maybe some other reference, you know. Mm-hmm. Always drums first because that's your foundation. In this case, what they did is they tracked a guitar first to a drum machine, and the drum machine was just uh, just a, a steady groove, you know, goons, gats, goons, gats, you know, just steady like that. And and each of the songs had the appropriate meter and all that, of course. And and so they they spent time getting all of Vinny's rhythm guitar tracks done for all the songs against this drum machine. And then when that was done, Dana Strum picks up the bass and drops bass guitar to all those tracks. So then by the time I time to do drums, essentially what I'm doing is replacing the drum machine track. So when I would record, I had the headphones on, I could hear the drum machine, I could hear uh, a, a click track, I could hear uh, Vinny, of course, the guitar parts, and Dana. So I'm playing along with all of that information in my headphones. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially, you know, in, in a perfect world, what would have happened and, and, and the way we started doing it is when they would listen back, they would pull the drum machine out of there because at that point, 
the drum machine's irrelevant. I'm replacing the drum machine, and I'm, I'm trying to glue together, you know, the guitar and bass with what I'm playing live in the mm-hmm. studio. The dr- drum machine just a reference point, and it worked. And I, I tell the story of going into this because I, I was uh, the drums were set up like, like Babyo Studios in Hollywood was on the second floor of this building. And underneath it, on the first floor, was this old gutted theater that it, that they'll be used for ages. Although uh, Van Halen recorded their jump video on that soundstage, I guess what if we, a year or two prior, whenever it was. But anyway, uh, so it was like this open wooden concrete uh, type theater, uh, vacated theater essentially. So the drums sounded monstrous in there. So to, so to go back and forth between where I was recording and where the studio was, was uh, an ordeal. I, there's like this catwalk thing I had to go across. I had to go through this little cubby hole and come into another studio. I mean, it was like, so I had to basically stay down there till the track was done. But when they finally invited me up to listen to our first completed track, I mean, it sounded fucking incredible, man. I mean, they, they cranked it up with the big monitors there. Uh, it was, uh, I Want to Be Your Victim, which was, of course, on the first record. Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoa, man, this sounds killer. The drums sound huge. The band sounds like we're playing live. I mean, it was, we, we were just beside ourselves over how good this track sounded. And so then they decided to listen back one more time, but bring in the drum machine. If anyone wanted to hear it with the drum machine, just to make sure that he didn't miss anything the first time around or whatever, because whenever they were listening to me, play back as I would record it the drum machine was always in there so after we had you know I recorded it they were satisfied that I played with the spot on with the drum machine they brought me in we listened to it we're all happy I'm about to go downstairs and do the second tune and Vinny heard like wait a minute you hear that kick drum right there second verse bar three that third kick drum right there it's off with the drum machine kick drum and that was it. For the next you know, two months, our lives were hell because that kind of introduced a whole new standard of like he wanted every single kick and snare lined up perfectly with every single kick and snare on the machine. And so if one drum was, you know, what it does, it, it creates almost like a, like a, what they call a flam effect, like almost like this sound. You know, it's almost like it isn't exactly together. It's just, but you would never hear, like the listener would never hear that in a, on a record but he i guess he got it in his head it's off with the machine you have to go back in there and do that bar over again so that's what sent me back downstairs then dana would have to punch me in and out of that particular section now dana on occasion might you know fuck up a punch because it's very difficult to get in and out of there meanwhile i might you know fix the one kick drum that he wanted fixed but maybe the next snare drum might have been you know so that's where the hell began and, and so that's what we had to deal with for the entire first go round of the record. And that was just round one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you get everything done and they call you back and they say, listen, there's, there's another problem. We need all hands on deck. You got to get out here. And you wound up having yes. to pay for your own ticket to add insult yes. to injury. And you get out there. And what does the drum sound like at this point? What, you know, because... I'm trying to put this all together because we've never heard this version of the album, right? Right. Oh, right, right, right. It, it, it was a mess, man, because because uh, just again, to be concise here, what, what they after I went home, I, I got I got after the first go around, I go back home. It's right around the Christmas break. And then sometime in January that I got that call where I needed to come back out there. So when I go. back, So what had been happening in the interim in those couple of weeks since I'd left is, is, is Vinny. I, I don't know. What happened? He began to uh, uh, he became dissatisfied with with what we had done, even against the machine. And then he started liking the way the machine sounded. So back then, uh, that was kind of the early stages of technology where you could uh, trigger drum sound. So you could 
have right. a machine that was playing a kick and snare sound, but tell it to play my sounds. Mm-hmm. So what started happening is get that snare drum's off. Let's let the machine pop in there and play that one snare drum. And so this sort of set the stage for this whole other way of recording where a lot of the kick and snare stuff was now machine. Mm-hmm. But because they were defaulting to the machine stuff, now maybe the hi-hat or the cymbals might be a little bit out of whack with that. Uh, ever ever so subtly. So the, the the whole idea for the second go-round was to go out there and allow the kick and snare to be mechanical through the machine. And then I would play like hi-hats and crashes, but then they would keep my original fills that I did downstairs in the basement. I mean, it was a clusterfuck. Right. And, you know, none of us were happy about it. We loved what we had originally. I mean, originally, originally with that first take of I want to be your victim. What we wound up with after the first round was we thought acceptable. But this was like a whole nother thing. So we were just we were trying to justify it like, well, OK, this is kind of the modern way to do it, I guess. People are using more machines now. And, you know, we just but it, it was a somber vibe. None of us were thrilled. I was I, got, I was kind of depressed about it. And I had my own you know, mind fucking going on because I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I mean, I'm just 22 years old. But I was thinking maybe maybe I'm not good enough to be at this level right now. Why do these guys have to keep have me come back out here? And maybe I'm not as, you know, as qualified as I thought I might have been. And it, it was a lot of that that went on. So we get through that second take, second go round. And it just it just it, it sounded like a, you know, a, a, a patchwork, a hodgepodge of different things. Right. Kind of live drums, kind of machine. It, it was a fucking, you know. It was a clusterfuck. Yeah, and, and this was around the time of like Yes's owner of a broken heart and all those weird drum sounds that had worked themselves into the right. You know, so I'm imagining Vinny trying to envision that as being part of heavy metal and and what he's wanting to do. Am I correct? That that's correct, but the problem was is that he was. And this is what I meant by he was kind of stuck between two worlds, like the way those records would be done with Trevor Rabin and, and, and uh, you know, Mutt Lang and that. Mm-hmm. It was a whole different approach. They, they had right. all the high end shit at the time and they, they were thinking more from, a, you know, me- mechanically than as a drummer. Yet Vinny still wanted, as I mentioned, the drummer in the room playing all the crazy fills and all that. So that, that's why I think, at least my take on it, you know, is that he was sort of conceptually stuck in between two worlds. Right. So while, yes, I think you're fire to have the real contemporary drum sound he was trying to go about it through more of a traditional means of recording mm-hmm. and that's where i think we got into trouble well not only did it cause trouble for you but when the record company and the manager george suet heard it they were having none of it right <laughs> when yeah because remember back then if somebody wanted to hear what we were doing at the studio they either had to come by or they had, you had to like fedex them a, a cassette tape of some rough mm-hmm. mixes right. that's it man this is pre-digital era pre-internet all that stuff you know george had been hearing about what was going on and, and he, he but he was in new york we're in la so finally he comes out to la he finally shows up to the studio to hear what the new drum sounds are like and he's like what the fuck happened to the drums this sounds like dog shit and that was it in a, in a you know brief but I guess spirited exchange that he had with Vinny. Uh, he's like, and, and I, I presume Vinny probably had been having his misgivings about it as well. Mm-hmm. I got that. I got the third and final phone call uh, to come back out to LA and do it all over again like we did it the first time. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I should point out that you know back then when you're dealing with two inch tape and all that, you know you're working with one set of tapes. So if you go re-record drums or something, and then you want what you had originally, you got to do it over again. There isn't, there mm-hmm. wasn't like multiple files or whatever. Right. Like, let's keep this what Bobby did on the first. You know. So there you have it. We had to go back. I had to 
Go back out. There was no save copy that, that you could refer That's right. back to. Wow. Right. What a mess. So this time, <laughs> Chrysalis is now involved because they're sweating it because they know that this album is now taking longer than it was promised, more than it should have, and they want what they originally heard now, right? Right. Th- yeah, this time, you don't have to pay for your own ticket back. That's right. They kind of saw, okay, well, okay, we'll get the kid a ticket to come back out and, and do it like he did the first time, and, and that's what we did. <laughs> The third pass, and believe me, you got to read the books, folks, because the detail of what they went through in the studio, it's there. A lot of times when there are books about music, as a fan, I want to know about the, what went on in the studio, how this song was written, things like this. You kind of take people right into that dungeon with you and deal with working oh, yeah. with Vinny as he's literally losing it while he's trying to hold it all together. And Dana's doing the best he can. Oh, yeah. It, it took two chapters because it's such a, a, an unusual circumstance and an unusual situation and the amount of complexity involved. And even like Vinny's, like the way he recorded guitars with all the different amps in the room. And I, like I go into detail because I was in the studio every day during all that process. So I, I, it took two chapters to kind of detail all of the intricacies and the insanity of, of that first record. you know. And of course, the biggest irony is really twofold. Number one, it was my first major label recording. I mean, I'd been in the studio before and done other recordings, but nothing like on this level. And then number two, at the end of the day, when the record was mixed and all the final guitars were put on there and the overdubs and all of that, the drums are, uh, you know, infamously, in my opinion, low in the mix. Yes. Like, like they, they, if you compare that record with uh, other records from the time, uh, you know, Theater of Pain or pretty much pretty much any other records from the, they're, they're just notably way down there in the mix. And, you know, the reason is because the, the frequency that the drums record to that are, are kind of in a competitive frequency is all of those layers and layers and layers of guitars. Now, the guitar sounds right. great, don't get me wrong, but it's just the making decisions to have a lot of the rhythm guitars and all this stuff that hot in the mix is going to crowd out other things and competing frequencies. And that's exactly what happened with the drum. So at the, at the end of all of that, when I finally hear the final mix, it was like in some, in some place, like, what was that fill I played there? I really, I don't remember it. And I can't really hear it very well right now. I mean, it's like, it was that, <laughs> that much of a thing, you know, uh, which by the way, if it's, if you listen like on Spotify or you listen to like uh, any of the more modern versions of the CD, when it was remastered in 2003, I think that helped it. Gave it a little more clarity, a little more uh, presence, the, the kick mm-hmm. drum and so forth, compared to what the vinyl was like back originally, you know. But still, man, it, it's that, that was like the the, 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 the bitter irony at the very end of it all, you know. Very good. The name of the book is The Boy Is Gonna Rock, written by Bobby Rock, a drummer's journey from Houston to Hollywood in search of hair metal heaven. And if you can get to the Indie Kiss Fan Expo, May 12th and May 13th, Bobby Rock will be there, and he wants to meet you. You can get a signed copy. Alita will be there. So many people are going to be there, and Mark Slaughter's going to be there. You guys are going to have a little mini reunion. That's going to be kind of cool. And also Robert Fleischman. Yeah, Robert Fleischman's going to be there. So it's it's going to be cool. A great big chunk of Invasion is going to be there. So that's right. (laughs) Get your album signed. I want you, but you never reply. I can't get through on your line Why your intuition keeps holding you down You're hanging me up every night Won't you do what me 
I want to talk a little bit more about how we went from Robert Fleischman to Mark Slaughter and how the sound changed for Invasion. Like, for example, by the time you guys are doing this, the song for the uh, Dream Warrior soundtrack that time of year, right? The band has underwent a change and now we have this different vocalist and it seems like the record company is more involved on this second album than they were in the first. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it, it is. There's a couple reasons for that, but yes, that's fair. The, the biggest dilemma of the first record is, you know, of course, Robert Fisher came in, did the record, and, and, and as it turned out, you know, I think he he was kind of on the fence in terms of his long-term commitment with the band, potentially. I don't want to say that definitively. Mm-hmm. But the, the bigger issue was, is, is there was some, there was, there was a contractual thing that I believe uh, our manager, Vinny's manager, who also managed the band, wanted Robert to, to sign a management contract with him. And he simply would not do it. So at the intersection of all of these different things, the contractual thing, and I, I just, and, and I know there's some other issues as well like that I, I mentioned in the book that I've heard Robert talk about. Bottom line is, Robert bails. Like the record's out there for what a month or two, and mm-hmm. Robert splits. So now we're in a panic. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of heat around the record. It's picking up momentum. Our lead singer just bailed. So after probably a couple weeks of frantic searching, uh, we had some contenders in there. Kind of close call, but ultimately, this kid from Las Vegas named Mark Slaughter gets the gig, and he comes in and actually does a remarkable job of saving it. You know, those those vocals on that first record are. You can't just get anybody to come in and sing that way, man. Right. And Mark had that kind of range, and, and he had a really cool way with him with the audience. And he was a, he's the kind of guy very easy to get along with. And uh, it was a, a great choice to, ha- to have him come in and join us. So he comes aboard, photos, video, and the tour. The problem was, and this speaks to the your issue about the label having less involvement with the, the first record, is that you know, we did the Boys Are Gonna Rock video, and of course, Mark just lip synced to Robert's vocal parts. The problem was nobody thought to negotiate permission from Robert Fleischman for him to be able to do that. Mm. So Robert's tuning into MTV, and, and all of a sudden hears his voice, but with Mark Slaughter singing, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So that leads to a settlement, you know, for, for Robert, and a, a legal situation where we were essentially unable to do a second video. So I think that kind of put the kibosh on the the you know long range game plan that may have been in place. Crystal, so they, I think they felt like their hands were tied. Right. Like for right. example, when they released their the second single, no substitute. There was no video for it. They just kind of threw it out there. It got a, that was a, that was a pretty strong song. I think it could have done much better than it did. But what are they going to do? They can't do a video. They just felt so. Just everything kind of rode off into the sunset early at that point. You know. Now jump to the second record. It's it's a, a year plus later when when that record comes out. I think they were they were more heavily on board with it. It was a, it was a, a, I think the writing was even more diverse. Then he wrote pretty much all that stuff from scratch at the end of the first tour. So he was very prolific as a songwriter. No one would ever doubt that. And so songs like Love Kills, which was the one that was actually on the the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, yes movie, and that time of year was our first video. <laughs>
you know, less frantic and over the top than a lot of the stuff on the first record. But they just, and I think that was probably the preference for the label. Mm -hmm. Let's go with something we can get on the radio and that kind of thing. And you combine that with a, a, an across the board sort of scaling back of the heavy duty glam thing that was going on. Because remember, between the first tour and the second tour, you know, uh, 87 going into 88. Now you have Guns N' Roses out. Now everything kind of got more quote-unquote street you know yeah that the girls 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 rug every, everybody got, suddenly became fucking bikers you know so yeah <laughs> uh, motley kind of went from that theater pain vibe now motley's doing more of the biker thing so just it, we the, the glam thing was just kind of a flash of the pan yeah. kind of thing for a couple of years though that also led to kiss doing their revenge look and right album. so you know All so it, exactly it, yeah it was basically a wave that was cool two years earlier now it looks silly and that's weird right. when we're talking about a genre that's made up of guys making their hair as big as they can wearing women's makeup. So it's that's, that's <laughs> it's right. weird that that looks silly. <laughs> but, that's right. That's right. And, and but, you know, I, I, mean, I, I just got to say, though, I mean, I, I know like in retrospect, you know, people go, oh, my God, man, how could you have possibly, you know, but I, I just remind people, I mean, back then it, it was it just that. That's just the way it was, man. I mean, mm -hmm. we would like, go to the shopping mall in fucking Salina, Kansas, looking that way or what. It, it, it just, it, it was just kind of, oh wow, those guys must be in a band. It, it wasn't like, it, it was just again, just part of the culture. You saw it every day on MTV. It was kind of the vibe. And even in in this popular culture in general, you know, the bigger hair, that you know, women wore the, you know, that poofy whatever kind of vibe, and all the bright colors and. You know, those uh, Cosby show sweaters and all. I mean, it was just that was kind of a sign of the, the culture back then. And of course, we took it to the nth degree. The problem was that you just hit you reach a point to where how much more over the top can you get at this point? Right. And I think that's what kind of created the in, inevitable backlash that we saw. Like when so when Guns N' Roses came out more bikerish and street and, and mm -hmm. less of that kind of thing. Uh, it's interesting to note, by the way, that like on that first, on, on Welcome to the Jungle, you'll notice that Axel's hair is a little poofier than it wound up being, because that was like the end of the way. That's probably the most they could get out of him at that time, you know. You're from, exactly from there right. On out, you know, was, it, yeah. From there on out, it was everybody kind of scaled back down, and, and one of the the drawbacks for us, and I, I, I get into a whole big thing about this in the book, is that you know we we are revised more mainstream more anonymous kind of look which it actually was for the second album it was more about trying that it was more about scaling back from the way we had looked on the first record with all the heavy glam stuff and the big hair and the makeup and all that and and rather than like a reinvention it was just sort of like a a a, a, a again a a more moderate you know, just like finding moderation and everything it's like okay let's do our hair that way let's do something more straight ahead with the clothing and what we wound up with was just kind of a homogenized rocker guy of the day look, but with no real cool or set image. Whereas like Motley was always really good about redefining like each record had a, you know, this is the reinvention. This is going to be the new look for the next two years or whatever it was. We were more follow the leader. And at that point, all we knew is we couldn't do what we did on the first time. So it's just kind of scale everything back <laughs> pretty much, you know. Wow. Amazing. So. Yeah. Now, I want to direct people to www.bobbyrock.com, or you can also go to the www.bobbyrockstore.com, and you can get some really cool bundles that one thing I saw that is still available are the pink drum cymbals. Those are for real. 
<laughs> yes, you'll notice with the Boys Are Gonna Rock video, uh, with, with pink being such the predominant theme, with like the, 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 the amps and the cabinets being pink and all that, we thought, wow, we gotta have, the, the symbol should be pink. And for the sake of the video, like some of the, the crew guys or whatever just painted them pink with essentially pink house paint. Mm-hmm. And of course, they sounded horrible. I mean, there was, there was no residence in them. But it's a video. It didn't matter. You know, so we just we painted them up and they sound they sound like utter dog shit there on set. But it didn't matter. I just played along with the track as normal. And, and then after the, this, the video shoot, but they wound up back in uh, storage and then they wound up from there back in my personal storage. And then they where they remained for about 32 years. Again, sign of the times. I know that when I was initially thinking about, you know, publishing the book and ways of doing it and, you know, Amazon and all the normal suspects, you know, I I kept hearing about, hey, you should should do like one of these campaigns where you bundle with other cool stuff. And then, bam, I thought about that. I go, man, how cool would it be to to buy this book that deals with that whole era and talks all about that stuff and also be able to grab one of the, the original stage played pink symbols from that first video? So that's what we did. Now we got, uh, depending on when you, somebody's listening to this now, I mean, there, there's, there are two of the four left. So two yeah. of them are already gone. We have one where I have the, the outfit on the back of All Systems Go. That's gone. We have, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so some of those, some of the real rare stuff went the first day. But, but there's still a bunch of other packages on there where you can get, you know, the, the, the book with the drumsticks or the book with the photo or the book, you know, just different kinds of things. We have some pretty cool combinations and, and people seem to dig it because especially those who like to collect the memorabilia and want something that the artifact from the era that we're really getting into with the book. So it's worked out pretty well. So you can pretty much can get this book any way you want it. One of the ways you can get it is to go to the Kiss Fan Indie Expo, the 20th anniversary of the expo. May 12th and May 13th, where you can meet Bobby Rock, and he'll sign it for you right there and meet a lot of cool people from the KISS world and the world of rock and roll and metal. So so get out there and support Bobby, or you can go to his website, bobbyrockstore.com, and you will find... You can buy this book so many different ways. It's silly. It's insane and over-the-top, just like the Vinnie Vincent invasion. <laughs> <laughs> and I, just, I wanted to mention, as you, you're talking about the Indie, you know, the Indie Expo, that's actually the official launch date for the book. Yes. Like Everything we're doing in the 30 days prior is sort of like the pre-launch. You can pre-order and all that. But that's actually the, uh, right there on the uh, Indie Expo floor will be the official launch that weekend for the book, and then the following week it'll be every it'll be on Amazon. It'll be more of your normal places as well. But hopefully we'll be able to see a lot of people, a lot of folks there at uh, at the expo. And of course with with Mark and and uh, uh, Robert both being around, uh, they be there's photos of them in the book. They'll be happy to sign them sure. And also Lita wrote the foreword for the book. She'll be on hand, so it's gonna it'll be a great occasion. Fantastic. Well, tell Lita and everybody we said hi, and look for Bobby at the KISS Indie Fan Expo. My broken heart is doing it now. 
one last thing before we go, and you are welcome to sure. come back to our show anytime you want, sir. Would you, Thank you. you just, appreciate it. You, you have such a diversity of things that, that I could talk to you about. I'd like to have you on our, our sister show, Pop, where we talk about pop culture. And I really want you to come on there and talk about Bobby Rock and who he is and just all the various things you're into because you and I are into some of the same things and it's pretty cool. But I have to ask you this cool. question. Did you get a chance to see any of the Vinnie Vincent stuff from this last weekend and the stuff where he was at Atlanta and the, the his, he's, he's coming out like a groundhog, you know what I mean? Not making right. fun of him, just saying uh, sure. that it's weird. You go all this time without seeing or hearing from him. And now it's, it's, it, this is happening. What are your thoughts on him right now? Man, I, I think it's great, honestly, man. I, I, you know, I was actually most of the way through this manuscript, this book, when I heard about Benny doing this Atlanta Kiss Expo. So it was like, like the timing. I, when I started writing the book, I, would have, I just figured we were never going to hear from Benny again, you know? I was thrilled about it right out of the gate, man. And I'll tell you, that weekend of the uh, Atlanta Expo, I had a show with uh, Lita Ford, and so me and the band guys and the leader were all at the airport about to jump on a flight. And, you know, like I'm like, you know, me and, and a couple of the band guys, like we're monitoring our iPhones. Like, wow, man, today is the day. And we're waiting to see if there's anything that's going to pop up on social media about it. Because I was interested. I was interested to see how he's doing, get a vibe of the thing. Uh, and I was stoked that he was coming back out, man. I mean, I, you know, he is a phenomenal musician and writer and you know, uh, it, it's, it's a crime against humanity that he hasn't been creating music uh, through all these decades. But anyway, at least that he's that he hasn't released it, I should say. But so, yeah. And then so we jump on a flight. And then as soon as we land in Minneapolis, turn the phones back on. Of course, my phone was blowing up with people sending me pictures and video clips and, and all of that, man. So I think it's cool. I was happy to see the, the reception there. It, it, it seemed like a, a memorable time. Uh, you know, had Robert Fleischman was there. And of course, he jumped on stage with Vinny. I saw a clip where they uh, played a little bit of Back on the Streets together. I thought it was killer, man. And I, I'm, just, I'm happy to see him back. And I, I, just, I just hope that on some level or another, you know, we'll get, he'll, he'll get back into playing and recording. I should say, I don't want to make it sound like he hasn't been doing that because apparently he has, but where he'll be publicly <laughs> you know, releasing new music and, and going out and, and performing and, and all of that, man. I'm fully in support of it. Uh, and I was just thrilled to, thrilled to see that he's back. Well, here's the big question. Are you ready? Sure. The phone rings and it's Vinny. And he says, hey, I want to do a track with you. Do you work with him or not? I mean, why not, man? You know, uh, I, you know, Vinny Vincent is a bad motherfucker. And there are a shortage, in my opinion, of bad motherfuckers in the world today out making music. So, yes, I'd love to play with them. And uh, I, I, I don't see any downside to it. I don't see any reason why I wouldn't, to be honest with you. Well, there you go. So if you want to hear more of the story from Bobby Rock, from a guy who was there, a man who worked with Vinnie Vincent daily, Go on tour with the band, go into the studio with the band, get the story as only Bobby Rock can tell it. And Bobby, we want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Anytime you want to come back, you are welcome. The name of the book is The Boy is Gonna Rock, A Drummer's Journey from Houston to Hollywood in Search of Hair Metal Heaven. Right on, brother. Thanks for having me, man. We will see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podkiss. See Bobby at the Kiss Indie Fan Expo. Is there anything you'd like to say to the audience? 
Uh, just looking forward to uh, seeing more folks there at the at the Indie Expo, and man, just just a big heartfelt thank you to all the Kiss fans. Man, like I mentioned, just you know, the Benny Mitz Invasion was just three years of my life, but ever since then, I've just always felt you know welcomed into the Kiss family by everybody, and I just really appreciate it, man. Your family now, brother. So there you go. Right. <laughs> all right. I seriously want you to come back. We will have you on Pop. It's a different kind of a show. We talk about everything. And I'll ask you stupid things like, what, what's your favorite music now? You know, stuff like that. And talk. I want to talk right, to right. you about Zen because I'm big into Zen. For sure. It's, it's changed my cool. life. And uh, nice. the fact that you're a vegan and stuff like that. I want to talk to you about, like, did you actually ever, you, you went to MTV. What was it like to go behind that curtain, right? You know what I'm right, saying? Right, right. So these are these are things. And For sure. Talk about what you're doing with Lita Ford now. So Cool. I hope you enjoyed the interview. It was great, man. It was- I, I like to do a conversation, not just ask a series of questions because uh, that's that's where the, the true heart is. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. But at the same time, man, you're, you had really great questions and uh, you like done, done some homework and everything, man. So it's always uh, always appreciated, you know? Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Bobby. We'll be seeing you. Right on, bro. We will see you soon. It was great. Be I had good. a great time. Man. All right. Fantastic, God bless. Bro. Take care. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at KissFAQ.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are Kiss, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. And, you know, you were talking about the glam and everything. I was working, I was right. in Laurel, Maryland, and there was a club called Hammerjacks there. Poison would play. And, right, uh, of course, yeah. Uh, Kicks, that was Kicks Home Bar, basically. Of course. And we were in an yes. opening band, and I'm a big, I'm a big guy. I'm a big fat guy now, but I'm a big guy. But even then, I was a big guy. But I was working as an assistant manager at a Zares store. And then by night, I would become uh, the bass player for a band called Mr. Monster. And we looked ridiculous with the big hair. And <laughs> and then in the next day, I'd have to get up and go become a working guy at Zares, right? right? So I know exactly what you're talking about. It was ridiculous. But, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that that was a weird change when things went from what was cool to what made you look like a fool the next day. <laughs> it was fast, so no fast. No doubt. No doubt, man, that's true. And then it happened again when it went from like it went from like the poison thing to Guns N' Roses to Nirvana. And that happened again. So it just shifted. It, well, but but it, it 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 happens 
but it, it's always been that way, though. I mean, yes. when you think about it, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, look at the, you know, uh, uh, the Fonzie, you know, jacket with the slick back hair and, or look at the, uh, the big, the big uh, Jimi Hendrix shirts with the cross and all that shit, the, the, the flower child thing. I mean, all, the, every era, every part of our culture has those sort of that that uh, intrinsic look that we associate with it. Yeah. It's just that the hair metal thing, I think, was really extreme, really over the top by comparison. You know? Right, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, you take a look at all the guys that didn't wear grease in their hair. They see Elvis on Sullivan, boom! All the motherfuckers running around with crew cuts and black glasses on. The Beatles come yes. on, and now everybody's trying to comb yeah. what they have down as far as they could the next day. Right. <laughs> Always. Always, man. Check out these ads from the following shows. We are proud to call them the Friends of the Podkiss Network. We are one. We're a scene man. You wanted the best, you got the best. And if you want the hottest show on Monco Radio, join us in the Kiss Room. The Kiss Room is a monthly radio broadcast celebrating the hottest band in the world. It's your place for all things Kiss and some... For broadcast dates and all information, go to thekissroom.com. The Kiss Room broadcasts live and worldwide on Monco Radio, where music and minds meet. Podcast Rock City. What's up, everybody? This is Joe from Podcast Rock City, where every week, me and my crew will bring you the Kiss News of the Week. Look at us as kind of a KISS version of Meet the Press, your source for KISS news every week. We're on iTunes, Podomatic, Twitter, and Facebook. Hey, this is Nick, co-host of The Pod of Thunder, the only KISS podcast that breaks down the entire KISS song catalog one track at a time. Every week we have a new song chosen at random, and we do our best to analyze it. We talk about KISS-related topics and non-KISS-related topics, all the while trying not to kill each other. If you like the sound of that, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and especially on iTunes. Pod of Hey everybody, I'm Aaron. And I'm Chris. And we're from the Decibel Geek Podcast. And if you love this... Then you'll love us. That's right. Brand new episode every single Monday. You can find us on iTunes and at decibelgeek.com. And the best thing is, it's rock and roll and it's always free. Hey, I'm Dr. Fuck. And I'm the Ayatollah of Alcohola. And we are from the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. If you want to check out some crazy, uncensored, unbiased, totally nuts reviews of classic hard rock and heavy metal albums, check us out. You can get us on Podbean and iTunes. New episodes every Sunday. That's right. And we also do each other's moms. True. Free of charge. Well, mine charges. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mine's free. Rock and roll and vinyl are meant to go together. <laughs> like drummers and strippers. <laughs> That's right. So maybe it's time to hop on down to your local record store and go digging for some lost gems. 
on final. And that's exactly what we do here at the Shabby Road Record Show. We pick selections from our own personal record collections, and then we discuss the songs, the artists, the albums, and the stories about the music that you may have never heard. And there's nothing more fun than listening to two knuckleheads spinning vinyl and talking music. So dive on into the five-star rated podcast, The Shabby Road Record Show. You can subscribe for free on iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, where there's a new episode released every Tuesday. Also, you can find us on Facebook and at our website, ShabbyRoadRecordShow.com. Oh, we're great at that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, we are amateurs. Yeah, I make all the sex sounds with my mouth afterwards. <laughs> Squish. Ooh. This place oh. is nice. Right? I'm glad you wore your nice flip-flops. <sighs> Stay frosty, man. Okay. Cool, my man.